Are you confused about end time events? Unfortunately, both unbelievers and many believers are mystified and perplexed. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians to clear up the confusion. He said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul said, comfort one another with these words. So I'm asking you, please accept those words into your life. And in this program, we'll tell you how to do it. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darick. In the churches, unfortunately, there's a lot of unbelief and confusion concerning the rapture and the second coming of Jesus. In many Christian circles, unbelief is regarded almost as an innocent form of weakness. But the New Testament does not regard unbelief as innocuous. Unbelief is regarded as a big sin, as stated in Hebrews 3.12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil heart of unbelief turning away from the living God. So please notice that the writer of Hebrews calls unbelief what? Evil. We have to pause to ask God to forgive our unbelief. Now, some of you may have sensed certain issues or barriers in your lives keeping you from succeeding or somehow blocking your peace. This could be due to the serious sin of unbelief, or our barrier to success could be due to an unconfessed sin. There is an important verse in this regard, Proverbs 28:13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces their sins finds mercy. At the time of the recording of this video, we are presently in the 40 days of repentance on the Hebrew calendar leading up to the High Holy Days. It's a time when the Jewish people humble themselves and seek forgiveness. They refer to this as the season of Teshuvah. That's an important Hebrew word meaning repentance or returning. You might ask, well, shouldn't repentance not be a season for 365 days out of the year? And yes, that's true, but just as there's a Thanksgiving holiday in the United States to render thanks unto the Lord, there are also seasons of repentance in which we purpose to return to the Lord. God doesn't want us to return to normal or even to a new normal. He wants us to return to Him. And that's exactly what repentance means. It means making a complete U-turn from our wayward ways to return to God. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance in the first place. We turn to God not out of compulsion or fear, but because He personally calls to our hearts. While the Bible says now is the day of salvation, 
every day potentially should be a day of repentance. Nevertheless, on the Hebraic calendar, there's also this special annual season of reflection that's very helpful to believers to focus on making amends and taking spiritual stock of ourselves. We get our house in order, so to speak. And how important this is, because so many believers sense the rapture is very near. This season of repentance leads up to Yom Kippur, the most solemn day of atonement described in Leviticus chapter 16. During this time of introspection leading up to Yom Kippur, the Jewish people seek to repair relationships, to repent of transgressions, and to ask forgiveness from the Lord and from individuals, family and neighbors. The rabbis teach that it's not enough just to say sorry but there should be sincere regret and, whenever possible, restitution for any wrongs or offenses committed. Naming the sins causes us to face reality and, hopefully, not to be a repeat offender. Rather than simply saying sorry, it's better to be specific, such as saying, for example, please forgive me for my unkind words or please forgive my thoughtlessness and so forth. Hopefully, naming the transgression will help to bring about the desire for real change to prevent us from always having to ask for forgiveness over and over again for bad habits. The Jewish people believe that confession of their sins on the Day of Atonement will cause God to seal the Book of Life and that they will then be able to begin a new chapter in a new year. But in actuality, the Bible teaches in both Testaments that a blood sacrifice is required to atone for sins. Christians believe the blood of Jesus has provided atonement for all of our sins. We believe the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And the great truth that's stated in 1 John 1, 9 is, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the list of confessions made on Yom Kippur, asking for forgiveness, I think is very instructive. And I've shared some of these confessions before, but I want to recall some of them to you now. Confession for sin, which we have committed, for example, before God under duress. Confession for sin, which we have committed before God without thought, for sin we've committed before God by the meditations of the heart. For sin which has been done with malice and a hard heart. And here's a biggie. Confession for sin which we have committed through speech. As God is presently in the process of restoring Israel, this time of year during the Hebrew month of Elul leading up to the High Holy Days, is becoming increasingly interesting to evangelicals. Many Bible believers who appreciate the Hebraic roots of our faith are watching Bible prophecy unfolding, and we're coming into a greater understanding of God's eternal covenant with the people of Israel, which he's never withdrawn. According to a Jewish parable, during the Hebrew month of Elul, the king comes into the field and talks to the ordinary folk. The king makes himself accessible to everybody. This parable, of course, preaches on many levels. 
For example, King Messiah, while presently seated at the right hand of the Father, he's also present 24-7 by his Holy Spirit in the world's harvest fields, and he sends his laborers into the harvest fields. Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, informs us that the laborers are few and that we should pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth more workers. The question is, are we in the field with a king? Even if you think you're not called to preach the gospel, nevertheless, Jesus commands us to look up and to see that the harvest fields are ripe and ready. And he commands believers to pray for the Lord of harvest to send forth laborers to reap this harvest. This is crucial because Jesus gave the key to a second coming in Matthew chapter 24 which has been called by scholars the spine of biblical prophecy. He said, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So you and I belong in the field with the king, either preaching, supporting, financing, or praying for him to thrust forth laborers into the great harvest. Well, for 40 days, the Jewish people blow the shofar, the ram's horn, and recite a prayer that goes like this. Awake, you who are sleeping. Wake up and ponder your actions and deeds. Remember your creator and go to him for forgiveness. Don't be like those who waste years seeking after vain things that neither profit nor deliver. Look well to your souls and let everyone forsake his evil ways and thoughts and return to the Lord, so that he may have mercy upon us. Amen. The sound of the shofar says, Awaken, sleeping ones, from your sleep. Examine your deeds and remember your Creator. Do repentance. Well, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul drew from his Hebraic roots when he wrote in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Messiah will give you light. This theme of awakening from stupor was also used by Paul when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 13.11, admonishing believers to understand the present time, that the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's vital to take stock of ourselves and to acknowledge any unconfessed sin and to repent before God, keeping short accounts with Him. It's for our own good that the Lord wants us to repent, to have a clean conscience. My husband and I watched an old black and white film the other night about a married woman who fell rather innocently at first into a dalliance with another married man. And due to the standard of morals that still existed when the film was made, the woman did not actually commit adultery, but she was too embarrassed and too ashamed to admit the brief encounter to her faithful husband. I'd like to say to young people, there are some things you might never be able to tell your parents because you'd be too embarrassed and too ashamed. And wives, husbands, there are things you might not be able to tell your spouse because you don't want to hurt them. But it's such a relief that you can confess to God anything and everything because he's never taken by surprise. He knows it all anyway. 
but he wants us to confess our sins so that we can be forgiven and so we can forgive ourselves. Isn't that liberating? Jesus, the Bible says, is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We could always confide in him, and he's always available. If there's any unconfessed sin in our hearts and lives, or if the Holy Spirit pinpoints something that has displeased the Lord, the Bible assures us that if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what's troubling your conscience, the good news of the gospel teaches that if you confess your misdeeds, you can be cleansed as if you've never committed the sin in the first place. And how does that work? The Bible says God blots out our sins. When we confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, the Lord doesn't hold them against us ever again. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has brought to your remembrance some indiscretion, some misdeed you committed way back when. But if you say to God, I acknowledge my sin, I'm sorry, forgive me, cleanse me by the blood of Jesus, you will be forgiven and cleansed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for forgiving us. We receive your forgiveness. Can you say that? And one more thing you may need to do, you may need to forgive yourself Sometimes that's the hardest to do. But you can say, God, because you've forgiven me, I forgive myself. Amen. Well, there's coming a period of unprecedented suffering for this world called the tribulation period. But first, we believe the Bible teaches a great catching away of the dead in Christ and the living members prior to the tribulation period of unprecedented wrath. The rapture, or potso in the New Testament in Greek, is not a new doctrine, but was taught by Jesus in John 14.3 and was revealed as a mystery by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.16-18 and 1 Corinthians 15.51-53. The doctrine of the rapture, the great snatch, was also taught throughout the history of the church. Paul taught that after first resurrecting the dead in Christ, Jesus will evacuate believers to himself in the atmosphere before the tribulation, which will be the worst period in human history, prophesied in the Bible, and known by a number of names, such as the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation or the great tribulation, the wrath of the Lamb, the hour of testing, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus, Peter, and Paul all prophesied the imminent event called the rapture. Imminent meaning it can happen at any moment. Mainline churches aren't really teaching about this, but no matter how many videos have been made by faithful Bible teachers and scholars, believers are still confused about end-time events. The confusion is that the Bible tells us to be watchful and ready, Jesus could come at any moment. But then other believers are adamantly insisting, no, first the Bible verses concerning the temple and the Antichrist must be fulfilled, and so on and so forth. As I've tried to say many times, if we realize that the Lord's coming spans an end-time period, beginning at the rapture and ending at the second coming to earth, then 
All the various end-time prophecies fall into place, each making sense and each prophecy making room for the other without contradictions. Yet, when we should by now know the times and the seasons, a lot of people are confused about Bible prophecy because of ignorance of God's Word. I'm sorry to say that ignorance of Bible prophecy is tremendously widespread in the church today. Multitudes of professing Christians do not know the clear teachings of the Lord's Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which, as I said, is called the spine of Bible prophecy. And in Hosea 4, 6, the Lord says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's only proper for believers periodically to confess to God our sin and ignorance of his word and the fact that we have not sought God as frequently as we should. Many times we haven't diligently studied his word at the crack of dawn or laid aside sufficient time to seek his will on matters. We spend far too much time on entertainment, but then the pressures of the end times also bring stress, calling for relaxation. It's just a vicious circle. So according to this season of repentance, we have to slow down and acknowledge that in many ways we are ignorant of God's word through our own negligence. And Lord, we do confess this as a sin and we want to repent of it. We ask you to forgive us and to help us to seek the truth more diligently as we see the day of the Lord drawing nearer and nearer. Now, many believers want to argue all the time, saying that they don't read the word rapture in the Bible, but that's because they're not reading from the Latin Bible called the Vulgate. The word rapture is there in the Latin Vulgate Bible, but in the New Testament Greek, it's, as I said, harpazo, which means to seize, to snatch, to carry away quickly, to be caught up, as in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where Paul says, we'll be caught up, that's Herpazzo, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Interestingly, if you do a search on one of the Bible sites, this word Herpazzo appears in various verses in the New Testament and also in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Each time Herpazzo is translated to seize, to catch up, to take by force, to pluck or to pull, for example, it appears in John chapter 10 to describe a wolf snatching a sheep. A number of times it refers to a supernatural moving of a person from one locale to another, such as in Acts chapter 8 when Philip the Evangelist baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And the verse says that when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. That's Herpatsa. He just vanished. And I believe Paul the Apostle was describing himself when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 12 about being caught up to the third heaven into paradise. So let's not be perplexed when it comes to the rapture. Many believers who want to argue about the pre-tribulation rapture have bought the lie that the pre-tribulation rapture is a relatively new doctrine cooked up by a theologian named John Nelson Dorby and the Plymouth Brethren. But our deliverance from the tribulation is soundly taught in the New Testament, as well as throughout the history of the church. I'm going to mention just three examples, and this artwork consists of screenshots 
from a Calvary Church sermon by Pastor Skip Heitzig. The early church father, Arrhenius, was the last known living connection with the apostles, and he was the author of the famous work called Against Heresies. Arrhenius stated, When in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up, it is said there shall be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. The shepherd of Hermas was considered by early church fathers to be part of the canon of Scripture and, and is, in fact, included in the Codex Sinaiticus. He described, quote, the great tribulation that is coming. If you prepare yourselves and repent with all your heart and turn to the Lord, it will be possible for you to escape it. Escape what? Escape the tribulation that's coming. And that's definitely a pre-tribulation rapture concept, agreeing with Jesus' own words. In Luke 21, 36, where Jesus said, Therefore be watchful all the time in praying that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. And in Revelation 3.10, Jesus also said, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Furthermore, another early church father, Ephraim the Syrian, was a hymn writer and teacher who is especially venerated in the Eastern churches. He wrote, All saints and the elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world. Well, how clear is that? I want to repeat the words of Ephraim the Syrian. All saints and the elect of the Lord are gathered together before the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world in the great tribulation. Indeed, the Apostle Paul had already disclosed in 1 Corinthians 15 Behold, I tell you a mystery. You know, a mystery is something that was concealed in the Hebrew Bible and revealed in the New Testament. I tell you a mystery, Paul wrote, we shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The twinkling of an eye is faster than a blink. It's just a split second. Okay, this rapture doctrine is called a mystery by the Apostle Paul, but it's a mystery that has now been revealed. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 declares, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So there are two categories. First of all, there are the secret things belonging only to God, but it's my responsibility to get to know the things that are revealed like this rapture doctrine. Paul said the rapture was a mystery that has now been revealed. It's our responsibility to minister to God's people about the things that have been revealed. Biblical revelations belong to us and to our children. Hallelujah. There's coming a day at the rapture of the church in a moment, in the flash of an eye, that every believer, dead or alive, will be changed and made incorruptible. This is the sudden transformation of raptured believers, some dead, some alive, but every believer will be forever changed. 
So let's let it be settled in our spirits about this. Let's not be double-minded. The scriptures warn that a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. The word translated double-minded in James 1.8 literally is a Greek word meaning having two souls. Strong's Concordance describes a two-souled or double-minded person as one who is split in half, vacillating like a spiritual schizophrenic. According to Hebrew and Greek theologian John Parsons, a double-minded person is full of inner conflict and indecision. They're like the proverbial divided house that cannot stand. The way to be healed of a divided heart is to earnestly make a decision, as instructed in James 4.8, where he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, literally, you two-souled ones. Make up your mind and be united within your heart. The same idea is referenced in 1 Kings 18, where the prophet Elijah admonishes Israel, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Are you going to worship the God of Israel or the false God Baal? So let's draw near to God with a sincere, undivided heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with the pure water of his word. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. No double-mindedness. Therefore, during this season of repentance, earnestly it's time to seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's call upon him while he is near. Right now, Lord, we simply want to declare, I do believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. And I believe in this Bible as the true authoritative word of God. And I believe, Lord Jesus, that you are returning soon. And I believe that you said that this word is truth. Amen. Now let me draw your attention to our website, exploits.tv, which has all of our videos and reports on Bible prophecy and end-time events. We invite you to sign up for our weekly email alert and at our Jerusalem Channel app, as well as our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site, you can watch our library of videos anytime, 24-7. And check out my latest articles and essays on Substack. Friends, the kingdom of God is at hand. Soon we will hear the sound of the shofar and see King Yeshua. Hallelujah. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me on social media. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. Maranatha! In my years of ministry in the Middle East, I've had deep spiritual conversations with many followers of Islam who shared with me one overriding experience. They all had, at one time or another, a dream or a vision about Jesus. And when they do, they have no doubt who he is or why he appeared to them. It's been my joy to document some of those heart-to-heart -heart encounters of Jesus in the Muslim world in my book, Miracles Among Muslims, The Jesus Visions. This has been out of print since its first edition in 2006, 
but now for the first time we've made it available to read as an ebook. Check it out in the bookshop at Amazon website. And if you have a heart for the Muslim world, I believe this book will be an eye-opening encouragement and great blessing.